spoke the word and all the worlds came into order. You waved your hand and planets filled the empty skies. You placed the woman and the man inside the garden. And though they fell, they found compassion in your eyes. Oh Lord, I stand amazed at the wonder of it all. Yet a greater wonder brings me to my knees. Lord, I praise you because of who you are. Not for all the mighty deeds that you have done. Lord, I worship you because of who you are. You're all the reason that I need to voice my praise because of who you are. One holy night you sent your promise from a virgin and promise grew as he revealed to us your heart. Enduring love displayed throughout his crucifixion. And with his death you tore the grave and dark apart. Oh Lord, I stand amazed at the wonder of it all. Yet a greater wonder brings me to my knees. Lord, I pray of who you are, not for all the mighty deeds that you have done. Lord, I worship you because of who you are. You're all the reason that I need to voice my praise. Lord, I praise you because of who you are. Not for all the mighty deeds that you have done. Lord, I worship you because of who you are. You're all the reason that I need to voice my praise because of who you are. Because of who you are. Because of who you Thank you, James. What a beautiful song and the message. It's terrific. Thank you for singing tonight. I was just sitting up there reading those words, out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Someday when the sermon gets boring, 
maybe tonight, who knows. Uh, turn to, is it 187? 178. Don't do it now unless you really are just about to pass out on us here. But turn to hymn number 178 and read those words. You talk about great words, a great mind putting incredible words together and succinctly in short phrases stating spiritual truths upon spiritual truths. It's marvelous. I hope that as you sang that, you listened to those words as you said them. They really are outstanding. We have a tendency sometimes, I think, particularly when words are familiar to us and the hymn to just sort of sing them and not think about what we're saying and what we're singing. There's a lot of great theology wrapped up in hymns, and uh, that's one of them. It's a marvelous, marvelous passage of truth set to music. If you have your Bibles, turn to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. The sixth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Brief background on this. Jesus went back to Nazareth, his hometown, followed by his disciples. And when the Sabbath day came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the congregation was astonished and remarked, Where does he get all this? Where does he get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given? And what about these marvelous things that he can do he's only the carpenter he's only the carpenter Mary's son the brother of James Joseph Judas and Simon and his sisters are living here with us I mean he's just hometown folks how can he have any insight we've been around him all of his life or much of it Where'd you get all this? And they were deeply offended with him. Isn't that interesting? Deeply offended with him. They're really jealous of him. He was seeing some things that they were not able to see or more likely not willing to see. Truth and insight. They'd stopped growing a long time ago. And he had kept on. But Jesus said to them, no prophet goes unhonored. This is not a statement of feeling sorry for himself and self-pity. He's incapable of engaging in self-pity. He just makes a clear statement. No prophet goes unhonored except in his native town or with his own relations or in his hometown. You know, when someone told some folks at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, that the Wright brothers had flown an airplane, the first people ever to fly, Somebody in Kitty Hawk said, first of all, no one will ever fly an airplane like a bird, and if they do, it won't be anybody from Kitty Hawk. Marvelous prejudice. No prophet goes unhonored except in his native town or with his own relations or in his own home. Now, I want you to listen to this phrase. I'm reading from Philip's translation, incidentally. And he could do nothing miraculous there apart from laying his hands on a few sick people and healing them. In this day, when physical miracles are looked upon by some as the miracle par excellence in the Christian life and as the un 
unalterable proof of the blessing of God, notice how the Scripture places such a miracle in relation to the real miracle of the healing of a soul. He could not do any miraculous works there apart from laying his hands on a few sick people and healing them. That's almost inconsequential in the light of the real miracle, which is the transformation of a soul, the healing of a spirit, the forgiving of sin. And we are so easily influenced by physical sensationalism and made to feel that there really is no spiritual power present unless there is some physical miracle demonstrating the presence of God. My friend, this scripture cuts the ground right out from underneath that erroneous biblical concept or unbiblical concept. The great miracle is not the healing of a few bodies. That's a minor miracle according to the scripture. Because they had so little faith, he couldn't do anything but that kind of miracle. Their lack of faith astonished him. It's interesting to read the New Testament and see what amazed Jesus. What amazed Jesus. For one, here's the example. He was amazed at their lack of faith. He was astonished at their lack of faith. So he left Nazareth not to go back. He left Nazareth in the latter part of the sixth verse of the sixth chapter, what we really want to focus on. I wanted you to have the setting, the background. Rejected at home, unappreciated there, unbelieved there, performed a few physical miracles, but nothing really stupendous by God's definition, named to the healing and the forgiving of a soul. So he left, astonished at their unbelief. Then he made his way round the villages, continuing his teaching. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in twos, giving them power over evil spirits. This is a very key strategic moment in the scripture. Very significant. I want you to look here at the composition of the community of faith, the composition of community made up of very fallible, ordinary men just like you and I. Fishermen and tax collectors, and business people, just everyday people. And he had called them to be his disciples, and they'd started following him, and they'd learned some things from him, and they were impressed by some of the things that he said and he did. And the composition of this community came to a turning point. More dramatic than the modern movie. A turning point when Jesus, in effect, said, it's time to change from disciple to apostle. It's time to start putting into practice what you have been learning. Disciple means learner. Apostle means sent out one. Apostello, sent out. You have been importing. You have been learning. 
You have been examining. You have been gaining insight and information. Now it's time to go. And they were not as ready as any person in this room. They didn't know as much as anyone here tonight. They didn't have as much knowledge as the youngest Christian in this fellowship tonight. They knew less about Jesus Christ than you and I knew. They knew nothing about the cross at this moment, nothing about the resurrection, nothing about the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing about 2,000 years of vindicating Christian history. They knew nothing about that. But he said, it's time to get out. It's time to go. It's time to tell some other people. He summoned the 12 and began to send them out in twos, giving them power over evil spirits. He said, you've been dealing with nouns, definitions, interpretations, ideas, insights, discussions, seminars, questions, quarterlies, notes. Now you're to become a verb. You're to do something. You're to go out two by two because you'll encourage each other. You'll bolster each other up on their leaning side. You'll be a source of prayer to one another, the source of encouragement to one another. This sort of rhythm is supposed to take place constantly in the life of the fellowship. There's a time to import. There's a time to export. There's a time to inhale. There's a time to exhale. There's a time to gather and there is a time to scatter. There's a time to reap and there's a time to sow. And one of the distressing things that comes to me and to any person in Christian work, and the cause of great concern is to look out on a congregation like we do Sunday after Sunday, this morning at 11 o'clock overflowing this place, 9.30. I don't know how many people were here today. And to look out there into the faces of talented people, successful people, conscientious people, dedicated people, educated people who've been sitting in a Sunday school class for 30 years. and ought to move out and teach and witness and reach and invite, eating and eating and eating and never exercising, importing and importing and importing and never exporting, always inhaling, never exhaling, and wonder why there is no vitality in their faith. My friend, vitality comes when the noun turns into a verb, and we do it. Oh, Buckner, I don't know enough. You knew more than James and John and Simon Peter and Matthew and Andrew. You know more right now than all of them rolled into one. What we need is not more ability or more insight or more learning. We need more willingness. More willingness. The composition of the community. Now I want you to notice the commitment of the community. Beginning with verse 7. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff. No satchel, no bread, and no money in their pockets. They were to wear sandals and not take more than one coat. And he told them, Wherever you are, when you go into a house, stay there until you leave that place. And wherever people will not welcome you or listen to what you have to say, leave them. 
Shake the dust off your feet as a protest against them. So they went out and preached that men should change their whole outlook. That's a great translation of repentance. That men should repent, change their outlook, change their direction, change their way of thinking. They expelled many evil spirits and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And all this came to the ears of King Herod. The commitment of the community, first of all, it's a commitment to go into all of the world. He sent them out two by two into the whole world. And later with his commission, his great commission, here is a commission early in the ministry of Jesus, early, sent them out. They came back. After they came back, he got together with them. They talked about it. They went away for a holiday. In fact, he said, it's time to rest a while. We need to go off and kind of think about what's been happening and what we've been doing and what's been accomplished. We've got to replenish our own supply, and I want to hear what's happened to you. But they were sent out into the world to penetrate the world. Now, where is the world? The world's where you and I live. The world is the area of our involvement. This doesn't mean that you have to go to Southeast Asia. God may lead you there. He led the stewards to the Philippines, but that's now their world. He led them there. So far, up until now, he's led every one of us to be right where we are. Okay, what are we to do? We are to penetrate the world we are already in. The world of our everyday con contacts. The world of our everyday casual acquaintances. The world of the supermarket and the office and the school. Wherever we are, that's our world. The world is the atmosphere in which I live. My home. church office, visiting a hospital, talking to someone, often casually, will stop you and ask you a question, come up to you at the table while you're eating, seeing television, want to talk. That's my world. And I am to be there, sowing that seed, penetrating it, being God's verb at that time, to say a word of encouragement, a word of faith, a word of hope, a word of reassurance, a word of invitation to somebody. Now this penetration has with it risk. Jesus is saying that right here. It has risk involved in it. That's really why it's so appealing to young people. That's why Christianity began primarily with young people. They like that challenge of it, the risk of it, the adventure of it. That's why I'm always going to be an older young person. I like the challenge of it and the risk of it and the adventure of it. He instructed them not to take anything for the road, no satchel, no bread, and no money in their pockets. They were to wear sandals and not to take more than one coat. They were to go out two by two. And he told them, wherever you are, when you go into a house, stay there until you leave that place, and wherever people will not welcome you or listen to what you have to say, leave them. Shake the dust off your feet as a protest against them. So they went out and preached that men should change their minds. The risk 
of dependence on other people. That's part of what it means to be in the fellowship. We not only have faith in the Lord, we're going to have faith in each other. And sometimes that person we lean on doesn't lean back. We need each other. The Apostle Paul uses a strange phrase. He says, we save one another. What does he mean? He doesn't mean that we judicially save one another in the sense that Christ saves us from our sins and saves us to eternal life. What Paul is saying there is we save each other for service. We are a source of encouragement to one another and thereby we save each other. How many times have you and I been saved by a word of encouragement? Saved from discouragement. Saved from despair. Saved from loneliness by a telephone call. Saving one another. We need each other. We're part of the same body. We're part of the same family. And we need to depend upon one another. And sometimes that dependence may be misplaced. And we need to restore that relationship and strengthen that person and help them be back there as a part of the supporting fellowship. Jesus is saying right here, there's, a, there's risk involved. Sure there is. You go out into this kind of world, you don't take anything with you but just what you have. And somebody along with you, you've got to depend on other people. You've got to not only have faith in God, you have to have faith in other people. How, how are they going to eat if they don't have faith in other people? You used to hear people occasionally come by and talk and visit with me about uh, supporting missions, and they'd always, uh, some of them would say, well, we are in faith missions. We just depend upon God. Faith missions. I said, sure you're in faith missions. We're all in faith missions. But faith missions means that you not only depend upon God, it means you depend upon other people. You're depending upon somebody to send you that money or somebody to give you that food or somebody to purchase that automobile. It doesn't float down from heaven on a spiritual carpet. It comes through people. This idea of saying, I can just live independently of the fellowship, just live by faith and God will give it to me. How does God give it to us? He gives it to us horizontally through other people. Right? Right. Faith, sure faith, but faith in God and faith in God's people. We trust each other. We depend upon one another. We support one another. There's risk involved in that. You might miss a meal occasionally. That'll strengthen your faith in a hurry. It'll get you talking to the Lord, and the Lord will get to talking to some of his other members of the body. And I've had it happen, and you've had it happen, and it's inspirational beyond description. And we'll be talking about some of this in the coming weeks. I'm going to be preaching on prayer and answers to prayer, how God inspires his people to meet the needs of other people that they don't even know about. Why should we be surprised at that? The Lord, the head of the body, leading his people to minister to each other, depending upon other people. Now, we sometimes disappoint other people. They sometimes disappoint us. What do you do? You try to pick each other up, wipe the dust off, and start walking together again. 
That's what it means to be a part of the church. Remember this, my friend, there's only been one person, virgin born, and who lived perfectly. And you're not going to find that anywhere else in the church except in Jesus Christ. So don't be thinking that you and I have that capacity that we are somehow immaculately conceived and we cannot fail and we cannot stumble and we cannot compromise. We can. We sometimes maybe disappoint others who are depending upon us. Let's restore the relationship, pick one another up through prayer, and keep walking and working and serving and loving together. There's a risk involved in it. There's also the risk of rejection by other people. That's hard for some of us to take. I guess it's hard for all of us to take. But you know it was hard for the Lord. And your mind quickly jumps to that event in the life of Jesus when looking down on the city of Jerusalem. He wept over it. How often I would gather you as a hen doth gather her chicks, but you wouldn't do it. Rejected. Now, if they rejected the Lord, there may be times when you and I will be rejected because, as he said, the servant is not above the master. If it happened to him, it will happen to us. If he was misunderstood, and he was, you'll be misunderstood. We will be misunderstood. Isn't it something? Jesus didn't win everybody he talked to. Our responsibility is not to be successful. Our responsibility is to be faithful. To sow the seed and share the word and make the visit and make the call and be faithful in communicating that word. But there's the risk, the risk of rejection, the risk of dependence upon others. And then finally there is that involvement. They expelled many evil spirits and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And all this came to the ears of King Herod. They were involved with evil people. They were involved with evil people. How can you go into the world and not touch the worldly? <laughs> You've got to get where people are. So forget yourself. Just kind of forget, you know, don't be so self-conscious about your Christianity. In fact, I think self-conscious Christianity is a contradiction in terms. Christianity is not self-conscious, it's losing yourself, it's forgetting yourself. Because you're interested in other people. Like never what they've done or how they've lived or how evil they are, they're people. And if you notice that the word evil is just the word live spelled backwards, that's the, reason, that's the reason most people get mixed up. They're trying to live and they just spell it backwards. They're trying to find life, they just look for it in the wrong place, in the wrong way. Sick people. People who are sick of spirit. So if you're sick of spirit, it won't be long before you're sick of body. And a large percentage, in fact, uh, some statistics I read this past week, 75% of the people today, doctors estimate, who are suffering from some sort of physical malady are suffering basically from some spiritual disorder or disease or restlessness, or guilt, or stress. It all comes basically from an attitude inside of them. Sick people. Sick of spirit. Depressed, discouraged, despondent. 
and powerful people, influential people. All this came to the ears of King Herod. We don't know where that witness will reach. It'll reach to the most powerful man in town. It did here to King Herod. Unbelievably effective and powerful and wicked. But the witness got to him. And it got to him through these people. Who didn't know as much as you know. And who hadn't been Christians as long as you've been a Christian. It got to them and got to him and to the weak and to the sick and to the evil. Got to all of them because they went. Because they were verbs. Action. When I was in Prague in 19... Uh, goodness, I've been there a couple of three times. Anyway, I heard about when the Russians were there. And I read about it later in uh, some literature that I received. When the Russians came to Prague. There were a lot of Russian soldiers who were peasants and they'd never seen faucets they'd never seen running water inside the house they'd lived in peasant villages and some of us saw some of those peasant villages on the train ride from moscow to leningrad like america 100 150 years ago I'm not putting them down for this i'm just telling you that's the way that much of russia is even to this day and uh some of those Russian soldiers came to Prague and they'd never seen a city like Prague. Magnificent, splendor, historical city. And they started taking the, the faucets off in the restaurants and the hotels because they thought if they could just take that faucet back to their home, all they had to do was turn it on and they'd get water. And then I thought that that may be apocryphal. Somebody may be just making that up. And if you read T.E. Lawrence's uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, Lawrence of Arabia, who adopted the Arab cause against the Turks during World War I and helped defeat the Turks, and a brilliant Britisher, an incredible individual. And after the war, he took a number of Arabs to Paris because they were trying to influence some of the discussions that were taking place at Versailles following uh, the cessation of uh, activities during World War I, he took some Arabs to Paris and he writes about it in the Seven Pillars of Wisdom. These Arabs did exactly the same thing. They'd lived all their life on the desert. They'd never seen water pipes. They'd never seen faucets. And they got into the hotels of Paris and they started stealing these things and taking them back to the deserts of Arabia because they thought it would produce water. We can kind of smile at that. And the reason we can smile at it is because most of us grew up in a house that had running water. It's not because we're smarter than they are. It's just that we've been exposed to some things they haven't been exposed to. So we don't need to pat ourselves on the back like those dumb Arabs and those dumb Russians. They don't know any better. That's not it. What about some of us who don't realize that our life is as useless as this faucet unless it's engaged somewhere? We come along and think, I created myself. 
and I have all of these resources and all of these abilities. That faucet didn't create itself. I can take that faucet and walk over and jam it in a wall somewhere and I'm not going to get water. Lawrence tried to explain to the Arabs that that faucet has to be joined to a pipe that's joined to a reservoir that receives the water from the melted snows and the rain and from the deep wells beneath the earth and all of that is processed and brought through those pipes right down there within about three inches of that faucet but it's got to be turned on. But no water will come out unless it's connected. You and I, like this faucet, were made for relationships. We don't have it within us. We've got to be joined to the pipeline. We've got to be coupled with Jesus Christ. He is the source of our life. He is the water of life that flows through us. You can get it close. You can get it close and not get water. In fact, Steve told me something this past week and we were talking about this idea. An astounding thought. Kind of a frightening thought. You see that wall over there? If I start moving toward that wall, but I can only go halfway to that wall with each step, I can only go halfway. I will never get to that wall. Never. And I'll be moving all the time. I'll be active and energetic and I'll be close, but if I move only halfway with each step, I will never get there. I don't mean in a million years, I mean never. You can get the faucet of your life up real close and close and close, but you'll never get the power until you make the contact. And you'll never make that contact Though you're moving and active and sincere and energetic, you're never doing it take a half, taking a half step at a time. Never. In infinity, you'll still be half a step away and a half of a half and a half of a half. Never. And that faucet not only didn't make itself and it's of absolutely no use until it gets joined to the water pipe, it's also of no use until it gets turned on. And generally, most faucets can't turn themselves on. They need some help. We didn't make ourselves. We don't supply the water of life to ourselves. And my friend, we don't even turn ourselves on. That's what the community does. The community of the committed, the community of the caring, the community of the supporting, the community of the loving. We help each other get turned on. 
so that that water of life can surge through us and we can fulfill the reason we were born. This faucet was born and made and created to do one thing, and that is to dispense water. What use is that sucker except for a paperweight or to throw at somebody that tries to hold you up? It's of no use at all. It was made for a specific function. And if it's not used for that function, it's useless. The same way with your life and mine. We were made by the master architect, by the great engineer himself, for a purpose. We were made to fit and to join him and to receive his life surging within us and other members of the community to help turn us on so that out of that little spout there can come water that will refresh the earth and refresh the spirit and save life and be used to help. You're a faucet. You're part of the community. You were created for relationships. Join up. Get into it. Do it tonight if you never have. Not a half step saying I'll do it next week or next month. Do it tonight. Or if you're a Christian, get in this church. Do it tonight. Let that water begin to flow. Don't just say, okay, next Sunday morning, I'll wait, I'll wait. No, now. Don't take a half step. Go all the way. Do it. And with the prayer and encouragement of this fellowship and your prayer and encouragement flowing back to us, we'll all turn each other on and we'll just be faucets of God's love just pouring his water out on a dry and thirsty land. Let's do it. Let's be that. We invite you to come to be a part of this fellowship. Let's stand, let's pray, and then we will sing together God's invitation. Father, bless this invitation as you have blessed your people through the years as they have made that commitment to one another and to you to others to go and may we tonight see the result of that in people's lives as professions are made as commitments are made as decisions are made that will join people to the fellowship the fellowship of Christ your son and the fellowship of his body his bride his life in the world his church bless this invitation to that end we ask for Jesus sake amen let's sing